0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with 2020 Democratic presidential candidate, Marianne Williamson.
1: Isn't that nice?
0: Let me just say that I was thrilled to have the chance to talk to today's guest, Marianne Williamson, a Democratic primary candidate for the 2020 presidential race. It was a great opportunity for me in my very first interview with a presidential candidate. And I remember the day that Marianne Williamson announced her candidacy. I thought, you know, this is excellent. Another woman has entered the race. Now there are six women running for the office in the Democratic primary. And that's historic. You know, whenever someone outside of politics decides to enter, especially in 2020, one of the most important presidential elections of our time, I'm always curious as to why, you know, with such a crowded primary, with a large slate of very progressive candidates, why run now? In fact, you know, that was my very first question. Why this race and why now? And here is Marianne Williamson answering that very question. Enjoy. Given that, So why do you believe that this is the best way for you to serve versus supporting the slate of candidates that we have
1: already? Well, first of all, I agree with you. It's a great slate. And I think it's healthy for our democracy and healthy for the Democratic Party that so many great people are running. I think that's a good thing. I am having a conversation, however, which is different than the conversation that others are having. Um, I am talking about things in a more holistic and integrative way. I don't hear any of the other candidates having quite the depth of conversation that I am about millions of America's traumatized children, including the need for a cabinet level department of children and youth. I don't think the conversation about reparations would have even been on the table had I not talked about it from the beginning of my campaign and also the conversation I have about reparations carries with it an element of spiritual force that comes from the actual giving of reparations as opposed to merely race-based policies. And I don't hear any other candidate talking about America's need to wage peace as opposed to just preparing for war, which is a conversation that the traditional political establishment pretty much stays away from. This is a much deeper topic than simply how much you spend on the military. My conversation has to do with the fact that our entire defense agenda is driven more by uh, short-term profit maximization for military contractors than it does for any kind of agenda that would actually prepare for peace on earth 50 years or 100 years from now. I don't hear any other candidate really getting into the depth of conversation that I do about how the corporatocracy operates about the corporatocracy as a veiled aristocratic system, how it has to do with advocacy for these corporate forces that is at the expense of our democracy and at the expense of advocacy for the American people and the people of the world and the planet on which we live. So I don't really understand where the conversation would even come from, where given what I just said, I'm supposed to just support other people, especially since the idea that we're all supposed to buy is that people who have experience as congressmen or senators or governors or somehow those who are the only ones that we should take seriously. Now, I have a lot of respect for the other people who are running, but I deeply challenge the idea that those who have been schooled in the mindset that got us here are the only people we should possibly take seriously as as the group that should be trusted to lead us out of the ditch. That mentality is what got us into the ditch. It is not, in my opinion, the mentality that will get us out of the ditch. The Constitution of the United States says nothing about a president's qualifications having to do with uh, having served in any political position whatsoever. The founder said in the Constitution, it is written that the president has to be 35 or older, born here, and have lived here for 14 years. That's significant to me because what it's saying is that they were leaving it to every generation to determine for itself the skill set necessary to navigate the times in which they live. I personally believe we need a political visionary more than we need a political mechanic. Franklin Roosevelt said that the primary responsibility of the, of the president is moral leadership and the administrative aspects are secondary. A great car mechanic is not necessarily the one who knows what road you should take to San Antonio. And the idea that experienced politicians, given that experienced politicians got us here, experienced politicians took us into Vietnam and Iraq, experienced politicians have created the largest income inequality since 1929, experienced politicians have taken us to a place where climate change is now literally an existential threat to our survival. A bunch of philosophers didn't do that. So I I challenge the assumption that anyone should be suggesting maybe I should support them. Maybe on the other hand, some of them should be supporting me.
0: You're right. No one talks about about the problems that we have in this country from a healing perspective. And that is something that's unique to you. And I'm really fascinated by that approach. You know, you talk about this in terms of healing the country, right? Kind of this the spiritual approach, right? But I think that we're at kind of a unique juncture right now in this country, right? You know, we've got, you know, the, the Mueller report just came out and people are really incensed. They're incensed about the, the misuse of power, voter suppression, you know, there are all of these things that are going on. And I feel as if people are looking for something else. I feel as if they want, someone who's going to be, you know, tough. And I hate that word, you know, tough with this administration. I mean, do you think that a message around, you know, healing the country is going to be one, is going to be a winning
1: one for where we are right now? What is it that you think the quote unquote experienced politician, and by the way, I have a lot of respect for experienced politicians, but what is it that you think some tough guy is going to be able to do? You know, I think the idea that if only we have someone tough enough to beat Trump is the way to beat Trump, I think is extraordinarily naive. It's a very naive view of the nature of the opponent here. I don't see a tough guy as, well, what is a tough guy gonna do? I think what we need is someone inspiring enough to compel the majority of the American people to wish to move in a better direction. And so I, for the very thing that you said, which is how, how difficult, how urgent these times are, You think that how urgent these times are means we need someone tougher. I totally agree with you how urgent the times are, which is why I believe we need someone inspiring enough to compel people to move in another direction. It's very funny for me to hear people say, people say I'm not tough enough because my entire adult life I've heard people suggest I'm too tough.
0: Yeah, I mean I personally don't believe that we need someone who's who's tough and like I said I don't I don't like that word but if you believe his voters some of his voters at least you know, what they've said about why they chose him, if you buy into that reasoning. And also, you know, people on the left, you know, they are debating in relation to the primary candidates, you know, who's going to be the
1: toughest opponent against Trump. My my sense is not that people elected Donald Trump because he was tough. I think they elected Donald Trump because of two things, both of which are very much related. One, there there were tens of millions of people in this country, and still are, by the way, living with chronic economic despair. Only two candidates acknowledged that: Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. So it did not surprise me at all that those people were not going to go with a candidate who said, "Let's just keep on in the direction we're moving because it's so successful." Millions of Americans were saying, "Successful? I'm dying here!" And now I, I'm one of those people who believe that if the if the establishment within the Democratic Party had not suppressed the Bernie Sanders campaign. That I think Bernie, uh, you know, I'm, who, who's to say, but I, I think he would have given Donald Trump a real run for his money because I believe that it was an, a populist cry of despair that was coming up from the bottom of things that was going to make itself heard. Secondly, I think that they voted for Trump. And I think that this is also explains the success of Bernie. People wanted a change. People are not stupid. They knew that the system was not serving them. And so they didn't want to go with someone who was just suggesting that we continue with the system that we have. And the way I feel about the 2020 election is that if all we do is offer people a better version of the same old, same old, I I don't think that that will defeat Donald Trump. I, I believe that the desire for change... Was legitimate in 2016. They got the con artist change agent. There is no doubt in my mind about that. But the the desire for change was legitimate, and I feel that it still exists. So going back to the candidates, you know, the Democratic slate of candidates.
0: You know, most of the candidates have platforms that are you know fairly progressive. Probably the most progressive slate of candidates we've had in in a really long time. You know, when, when we have a really Big field like this. I'm always looking for differentiators, right? Well,
1: first of all, first of all, I don't think that they're all serious progressives at all. I think Elizabeth is, and I think Bernie is, but I think "progressive" is a term that everybody uses now because it's hip and cool. But I don't think that every other candidate actually addresses the deep forces, the deep underlying forces uh, that have created our income inequality or that keep the corporatocracy um, in place. I don't. I don't feel like I'm running against anyone. I'm running with a lot of good, smart people. But once again, I challenge why are, are we asking them why, why are they running when Marianne Williamson is running? I don't, I don't, I don't understand that. I think that if, if, uh, Elizabeth Warren feels moved to run, she should run. If Bernie Sanders feels moved to run, he should run. And if I feel moved to run, I should run. You know, this is a difficult thing to do. And I have a lot of respect for anyone who takes it on. I, it's not an impulsive decision that one makes to run for president. It's not an easy decision. And it takes a lot. So I have great respect for all of them. But I, I don't think that any of us should be have to, having to answer to why we're not stepping aside and letting someone else do the, do the job. By definition, if you're running for president, if you are a serious, emotionally and psychologically sober person, you think you could do a better job.
0: Yes, I, I agree. And I don't want to suggest
1: that, you know, the primary shouldn't be open, open to everyone. And do you, do you, can you see where my sense of how the economy operates in the United States, which I do feel is addressed by Elizabeth and I do feel is addressed by Bernie. And they, they do address it. I'm not saying that they don't, but it's, it's incorrect, I believe, to say that all of the people running do. Elizabeth certainly does. Bernie certainly does. Both of them make it very clear that we have what, what I call a veiled aristocratic system where a very small group of Americans, you know, there is a difference between wealth and aristocracy. Wealth is a good thing. And, and there are many people who have made a lot of money in America in righteous ways. And I applaud that. The problem is not that some people are rich in America. The problem is that not enough people have a chance to create wealth. There's a difference between wealth and aristocracy. Wealth means people have money. Aristocracy is where you have a government that whose policies actually make it easier for those who have a lot to make even more. And those policies make it harder for those who are in survival to even make ends meet. That's what we have today. And I think the larger conversation that I'm having with the American people, not just about how we have to fix it, but What we need to realize in terms of the larger historical narrative and in large of the, uh, in terms of the underlying dynamics, both economic and otherwise, that keep this in place. Only a massive awakening on the part of the American people can override this. We need something, you know, and, and I have, listen, I have great respect for Elizabeth and Bernie both, but I, I, I don't want to go to Washington and fight for you. It, it's bigger than that. I want to go to Washington and co-create with the American people. What needs to happen in Washington also needs to happen in every city. It needs to happen in every state. And I feel that my ability to articulate not only what got us here, it, it, it my ability to articulate what it got us here, I believe, is a very important factor in inspiring people to do something about it.
0: Right. You know, I was reading your book, Healing the Soul of America. And in it, you do talk about, you know, going back to reparations, you do talk about reparations. And, you know, I know that reparations, like you said, it's it's kind of the topic de jour, you know, among candidates now. But you've been talking about it for a really, really long time, right? And 20, way, years. 20 years, right. And I, and I, the way that you talk about it is really different. And I, think that you have probably the most depth when you talk about it of any other candidate that I've heard, you know, and in your book, you say you have a quote that says that when African-Americans, when they say the word reparations, you think that they suggested something that was completely outrageous. You know, why do you think that that people, especially people who have run for office, have
1: pulled away from this topic? Well, it's not so much they've pulled away from it. They've never even been willing to go there. (laughs) So... And I can't speak to why other people haven't gone there. I can speak to why I do go there. And I go there because I believe that we need a spiritual healing in the United States. To me, this is reparations is not just a black agenda. It's, it's, a, it's an agenda, in my mind, a spiritual agenda for making America whole. You know, spirituality is the path of the heart. That's all that it is. And Abraham Lincoln said in 1864 that a nation must confess its sins. Now, whether you're a a Catholic going to confession or a Jew going to Uh, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or whether you're in a 12-step recovery meeting and you know that you have to take a moral inventory, a serious, honest moral inventory, you have to, to admit the exact nature of your wrongs, admit your character defects and atone for them and make amends for them. All that a country is, is a collection of individuals. So the same psychological and emotional dynamics that prevail within the journey of an individual prevail within the journey of a nation. So I believe America has to admit its character defects. America has to look at the places where we're not who we say we are. America has to look at the gaps that exist and have been existing for decades now between the principles on which we purport to stand, and how we're actually behaving. And I feel that my 35 years as a professional in doing just that is what I bring to the table. Because until you address the deeper forces that are driving your life, it's no different in politics. We're not looking at the deeper forces that are driving our politics. And the fact that the Republicans were gobsmacked by Trump And the fact that the Democrats were gobsmacked by Bernie Sanders, both of those prove my point. The political establishment doesn't look beneath the waterline. They didn't register all that anger because they didn't register all that despair. And what I'm pointing out, whether you're talking about a terrorist organization or whether you're talking about a dynamic uh, in your own country, which includes sometimes domestic terrorist organizations, you need to be able to understand what's going on inside people. Because what's going on inside people, which is very much affected by economic and other policies, is what then then drives people to behave the way they behave. So what led you to that position personally 20 years ago? Well, once again, once again, because my, my field is transformation. So to me, whether it's an individual or a group, because all that a group is, is a collection of people. The issue of transformation means looking deep down, including your character defects. And until you address them and until you expunge them, until you atone for them, until you bring them to light, until you make amends and until you, you, you seek to change, those character defects are going to have consequences because a character defect is a place where you are unaligned with the angels of your better nature. It's a place where you're unaligned with love. So where you're aligned with love, you will subconsciously as well as consciously bring forth positive consequences and where you are unconsciously or consciously unaligned with love, you will bring forth unhelpful, negative consequences. So when I look at the United States, there is a major character defect that we have had from the beginning, and that is racism. And if you look at the entire history of race in the United States, I don't believe that the average American is Um, a racist. I don't actually, but I do believe the average American is undereducated about the history of race in the United States, particularly since the civil war. So I've been having a very interesting experience. You know, I tell my black friends all the time, I know you might not believe this, but I'm telling you, I say, every time I talk about this in Iowa, one of the whitest states in America. Every time I talk about this in New Hampshire, one of the whitest states in America, once I go through the historical narrative and I, I talk to people about, okay, there were four to five million slaves at the end of the Civil War. General Sherman promised each family of four, 40 acres and a mule, 40 acres and a mule would have given them a chance to integrate into the into their newly freed situation. Most of the time, that was not given. When it was given, it was taken away. Once the federal troops left, institutionalized white supremacy and an era of domestic terrorism against blacks began. Black code laws were passed to ensure subpar economic, social, and political opportunity. Lynchings were common. Ku Klux Klan by 1900 fully institutionalized white supremacy and segregation, none of which was addressed fundamentally until 100 years after the Civil War with the passage of the Civil Rights Act in 1965, which which desegregated the American South and the passage that was in 64. Then in 65, the Voting Rights Act, which, which guaranteed equal access to the polls, although that even we have been chipping away at in the last few years. So when I tell people all of that and I go through it and I take five to 10 minutes, then when I point out we freed the slaves. We, we, we desegregated after a hundred years. We gave equal voting rights, but simply we have not yet gotten to the economic restitution piece. I think things might have been different had Lincoln lived. I think things might have been different if Martin Luther King lived, but now it's time for our generation to do what we need to do. When I say this to audiences then I, I, every time I'm in the whitest states and I say, then it makes sense. You know, Germany paid reparations to the Jews after World War II in the form of, 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 uh, to Jewish organizations, we can do the same. And every time I talk about this, every time I talk about it, I get applause from audiences. We have a political system that not only, it does worse than dumbing down the conversation. This is a very serious time in America. You yourself said this a few minutes ago. This is a very serious time in America. This is not a time to be having a childish, immature, superficial conversation. We need to get deep. And we need to get real and we need to get authentic about what's going on in this country and what needs to happen. It's because it's such a serious moment. And so we need a political situation and conversation that does not just try to lure people into giving them power because we're going to give you a tax break here or a pr- tax break there. Although those tax breaks are necessary and deserve to America's middle class, we need to, well, at least what I'm doing. I can only speak for myself. I'm offering the American people an option of doing the right thing. That's the point. That's where your moral force comes from. America will not heal. America will not get onto higher ground and a better future until we do the right thing. We need to rescue these millions of American children living in chronic trauma no differently than we would rescue them from a natural disaster. We need to take this next step in economic restitution for slavery because of this underlying tension and anxiety between the races. And we need to fundamentally shift our national security agenda away from sole reliance on preparedness for war and do a far more robust partnership between defense and state that has to do with proactive Peace creation through expanding economic opportunities for women, educational opportunities for children, diminishing violence against women, and ameliorating unnecessary human suffering wherever possible. These are fundamental. And I'm sorry, but I really don't hear them discussed the way I discuss them in other campaigns.
0: You know, when I hear you talk about healing the country, the first thing that comes to my mind is gun violence, right? I I mean, among other things, right? But specifically gun violence. And I'm curious about your your position on gun violence, because I feel like all of the proposed solutions so far are the kind of Band-Aids. I mean, do you think that we're
1: going in the right direction with our gun violence solutions? Well, I think that your point is well taken. And that's the point I'm trying to make here about everything. The traditional political conversation is just a bunch of Band-Aids. And so that's why we need a larger, more holistic conversation. In this area, as in so many areas, the American people are not the problem. The American people want to close loopholes. The American people want universal background checks. The American people want to outlaw bump stocks. The American people want to get assault weapons, military style assault weapons out of the hands of the average citizen. Once again, the American people are not the problem. The corporatocracy is the problem. Our government works more to advocate because of the influence of the NRA. Our government, Does more to advocate for short-term profit maximization for gun manufacturers than for the health and the well-being of of the average American. This is no different than the fact that we're not fighting climate change because of fossil fuel company profits. We don't have universal health care because of big pharma and health insurance companies' profit. We're not waging peace because military industrial profits. It's the same problem. And I believe that the that until we address that underlying issue then then nothing's going to change except like you said we're just going to be putting band-aids on the problem all the time so at this point violence in america obviously has to do with, we're going to have a serious conversation about gun violence, we're going to have a serious conversation about violence, then I agree with you, we're really going to have to go deeper than Band-Aids. That's my whole, that's, that's, that's my entire campaign. In every area, we have to go deeper than Band-Aids, including the fact that we have to acknowledge the violence in our own hearts. We have to look at the violence on television. I'm not for censorship, but we should certainly have the conversation, the gratuitous violence the gratuitous violence that's on television, simply so that, you know, somebody's going to make more money from advertisers. Now, I'm not saying we should should legislate that in any way, shape, or form. But as a society, we must face this about ourselves or we will not heal. That has to do with video games as well. And that has to do with our own attitudes towards each other. You know, these days, the emotional violence, the psychological violence, you know, the philosophy of nonviolence means... Internal purification of our hearts as well as external purification. And right now, on both sides of the political spectrum, you know, a smug, self-righteous, uh, intolerant left winger is no less uh, dangerous to the fabric of this country than is a smug, self-righteous right winger an intolerant right-winger. But what you said is true. And that's the whole point here. We're just putting on Band-Aids. So, electing someone who's just going to come up, you know, it's like, oh, my my Band-Aid has little pictures of stars and moons on it. Um, Band-Aids are not enough. We have to go into the deeper psychological and spiritual and emotional waters and conversation. This is the 21st century. And our politics is a very 20th century paradigm. Treating the world like it's a, it's a machine. And if you only tweak it here and tweak it there. And that's not enough. We have to have, we have to have a political conversation that's as deep as the conversation we have everywhere else. This is the 21st century. People go to therapy. People have spiritual practice. People meditate. People go to recovery groups. People know that where their consciousness is matters. But the tw- the, our political conversation is this silly relic, obsolete and, and inaccurate, by the way, filter for how the world actually operates.
0: Yeah. You know, I guess I'm struggling with, you know, how do you accomplish this legislatively? Like I'm thinking about specifically, let's just go back to the gun violence example for a minute, because, you know, even if we enact legislation that, you know, we have universal background checks, we outlaw bump stocks and, you know, someone could have a gun legally and they could still use it in an immoral way, which happens all the time, you know, in domestic violence situations or, you know, people pulling out a gun to
1: to to resolve a parking dispute. And my point is exactly what you just said. Not everything can be accomplished by legislation. By the way, you keep talking about legislation. Look at what Trump has done to this country, and it's not all legislation. The president appoints people. It's the people that you appoint to cabinet positions. It's the people you you appoint to judgeships. I mean, there are so many decisions that the president makes that are not only legislative. Remember, the president is the executive branch. So, legislatively, a lot of that is going to have to do with who you elect to Congress, who you elect to the Senate, and who you elect to the House of Representatives. But even that idea that, oh, the president, because the president's going to be, uh, what's the legislation? And even within that, so what, you think somebody who spent a couple of terms in, in Congress somehow has a better view of what the legislation should be? That's a very naive perspective because it shows that somebody doesn't really know what Congress people do all day. You know, the president has, look at the negative effect that the very consciousness of this president has had on our country. It's not just what's happened legislatively over the last two years. It's what has happened because of who we appointed to the EPA, how they've gutted the Clean Water Act and gutted the Clean Air Act and overturned the ban on pesticides that harm a child's brain. It has to do with the fact that we have a State Department that does more to advocate for for sales than for moral principles, as evidenced by something like the fact for the sake of $100 billion in arms sales be willing to partner and, and have anything to do with the Saudis in giving them aerial support for that war in which tens of, of thousands of people have been starved, including children. This is not just legislative. This is, this is so much more than just legislative. It's the principles on which we stand as they are represented in many, many areas. And I think when you talk about gun violence, what you just said is true. I think a president who can talk with some gravitas and meaning And make words land having to do with the violence in our own hearts is as important as any legislation that we could support. Look, Obama supported common sense gun safety, but he didn't have a Congress who would go along with him. So until you have a Congress that goes along with it, I'm not sure that, you know, we shouldn't overestimate the power that the president has. Right.
0: You know, so then, you know, how do you accomplish that? Because we work within a legislative framework, right? We don't work in, in, in like a visionary framework. We have to work with the people who are elected, including the people
1: who were put into office by, by Trump. So how do you do that? But the point is that the executive branch, of course, the government works within a legislative framework, of course. But the executive branch of the government works within the executive framework as well. Is all I'm saying. And the consciousness of the president. And also don't underestimate the bully pulpit. Don't underestimate the power of the president in articulating a vision and enrolling people into that vision. And as the president articulates a vision and enrolls people into that vision, then the people make the different decisions than they would otherwise make in who they elect during the midterm elections for Congress and for Senate. So I don't think that, you know, if you look at my website, And you look at my issues page, there's no candidate out there who has more specific legislative or policy positions than I do. The idea that you're talking about the spiritual healing of the United States doesn't mean you're not a practical person. I mean, that's kind of absurd. I, I think when I say that we need to have a cabinet-level department of children and youth, when I talk about paying hundreds of billions of dollars in reparations, when I talk about having a far more robust State Department working in far greater partnership with the Defense Department. When I talk about a United States Department of Peace, when I talk about a year to 18 months of mandatory national service, when I talk about giving back the Black Hills of South Dakota to the Sioux Indians, there's nothing in my positions or in my platform that lacks the practicality of actual policy positions. and. And fundamental ones, by the way, I would, in fact, if anything, I would suggest the opposite, that other candidates are the ones who have more talk and less action proposed. Not all of them, not all of them at all.
0: If you like smart podcasts about politics and foreign policy with an injection of humor, you're going to love Deep State Radio. Twice a week, this podcast will take you on a smart and direct tour of the inner workings of American power, hosted by noted author and commentator David Rothkoff. Deep State features regular guests like Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School or Corey Shockey, who's the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Deep State Radio features a regular rotation of guest experts from legal, national security and foreign policy communities who provide an insider perspective that you can't find anywhere else. So subscribe to Deep State Radio wherever you get your podcasts or visit the DSRnetwork.com for more information about becoming a member. You also talk about establishing a department of children and youth. What would the goal be there? What would the department do?
1: We have millions of American children who live in chronic trauma. We have millions of American children who go to school every single day in schools that do not even have the minimum school supplies to teach a child to read. And if a child cannot read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically decreased, and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. Millions of these children live in what's called America's domestic war zones, where the PTSD of a returning veteran from Afghanistan or Iraq is no more severe than the PTSD experienced every day by these children. For a veteran, it's post-trauma. For these children, it's present trauma because it's triggered and re-triggered every single day. We should be rescuing these children no differently than we would rescue them from a natural disaster. Now, we do not in this area, as in every area, whether it has to do with climate crisis, whether it has to do with military, whether it has to do with anything we're talking about here, America has the genius, America has the creativity, America has the productivity, and America has the ideas and the practices and the best practices that actually demonstrate what you do to fix these problems. With children, there are experts, early childhood development experts, pediatric uh, medical experts, people who understand about anti-trauma work, wraparound services, social work, conflict resolution, restorative justice, There uh, mindfulness in schools. There are so many things we could do. And yet in state after state, I'll give you an example. I was at a, but this is in every state. So this isn't in, you know, don't kid yourself that this isn't happening everywhere. I was with a high school principal in Las Vegas, Nevada the other day. They have elementary school kids on suicide watch. They have 62 to 67% of these children are getting their, their meals from food banks. This and, and, and this principal cannot even get a social worker at the school. Why? Because it's not considered one of the worst cases. Now, these children are not in neighborhoods where there are necessarily the parents who are the biggest voting constituency, hint, hint. So they are being ignored. They 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 are not old enough to work, so they have no financial leverage and they can't even begin to compete with the corporate clout of those who are just flooding the offices of Congress people in White House every single day. So what you have, when I meet the people who are doing the great work for these children, they're making in most of these states on an average, maybe 15% of the children who really need these services are getting them. What we would do with the Department of Childhood and Youth is let's let's map this out. Where are these problems? What are these problems? Like I said, we need to rescue these children. This is a humanitarian crisis. And in our Declaration of Independence, it says God gave all men inalienable rights to life, to liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and governments are instituted to secure those rights. These children are full-on citizens of the United States, and these kids are not free to pursue their happiness. Government should be in service to them. So, in, if I'm elected president, we have a Department of Children and Youth. Let's map this out. Where are these worst case scenarios? What's happening to these? What is happening to America's children? This is so much bigger than just early, you know, it's, it's bigger than these incremental approaches like, oh, we need universal preschool. Yeah, you think some of these kids, though, are traumatized before three. We also need to address maternal health. There is so much we need to address. We need to address the fact that of women who are incarcerated, 80% of them are mothers of single households. This is such a trauma in our midst. And no, I'm sorry, I do not hear the traditional candidates going on about this the way I am. And they won't, as long as it's not brought to the fore, this is what leadership should be. So, a Department of Childhood and Youth says, okay, let's look at what is the problem, where are the people who are solving these problems, and funding them, funding them. The United States, you know, you look at something like this, 2017 tax bill, $2 trillion $2 trillion with 83 cents of every dollar going to the very richest and the very richest corporations and the corporate subsidies and the the tax bills. What we're doing is we've been systematically removing the wealth of this country into the hands of a very few people. And so where's the money that's going to help with these kids? It's, it, it's, it's immoral. It's, it's a, it's an, we, we should all feel something. No, I'm not saying we should all feel some deep level of shame because I'm not saying that, but it is a, is a shameful thing. Meanwhile, I'll give you an example of, of the insanity of it all. Our air force has ordered 100 B-21 Raiders and the B-21 Raider, each one of them, this is an airplane, $550 million And each one of these planes carries both conventional and nuclear weapons. Now, let me ask you, you're a citizen of the United States. You just you tell me, can you tell me why America needs a 100 planes that drop nuclear bombs? Because you drop five of those, it's over for human civilization as we know it. You drop 10 of those, it's over for the human race probably for at least 250 or 300,000 years. This has nothing to do with agendizing peace. And think about how much one of those planes, think about how much That $550 million we're spending on one of those planes could do to help these children. So when you say, what would we do? (laughs) We need a massive realignment of investment in this country, the direction of children under 10 years old. If we want to take care of our economic vibrancy, not to even mention peace 10 years from now, we would do much more to take care of these 10-year-olds today. Neurologists now say it all happens before the age of eight. If we don't get to these children before the age of eight, meanwhile, if we do get to them, if you want to see the amazing potential for economic abundance for our society 10 years from now, if you want to see the amazing potential for this society, look at every kindergarten in every neighborhood in America, rich or poor, but we're the only country that does so much of our funding of our educational system based on property taxes. So what that means is that a child in a poorer neighborhood isn't going to get as good an education. And if we haven't gotten to this child by eight, not only will they not be contributing what they could have contributed had we mined the gold of their God-given potential, but their path to incarceration has become probable. We, you, you need a president who sees all this names all this and changes all this.
0: Right. You know, something you said in the beginning, and I I just I wanted to go back to it because I can't get it out of my mind. Okay. So you talked about Trump and you, you talked about Bernie Sanders and you talk about, you know, this group of voters who were angry, but not racist necessarily. Right? And I don't necessarily think that I buy that because Trump, you know, the cornerstone of his campaign was racism and xenophobia. I can't fathom how any group of voters would A, vote for someone who was so openly racist, right? And and then would still stick with him, right? And it, it just seems counter to your position on, or your beliefs about reparations that, you know, this is America's original sin, right? And it's fueling everything from, you know, mass incarceration to voter suppression to,
1: you know, immigration, right? So I, I guess I'm just having trouble okay. divorcing so, those two. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So, okay. So you said just now, that you cannot imagine any group of voters being willing to vote for a racist or a misogynistic or uh, a xenophobic uh, president, right? And not actually be racist, right? No, I understand. But this was my experience. No, this really isn't a matter of opinion. It was just my experience as I traveled the country. I can't tell you how many people spoke to me with a message that was basically the following. I'm not saying it's not really for you or me to agree. It's simply what I'm telling you is how many people said to me in one way or the other, I'm dying here. He might be racist. He might be misogynist, but maybe he could help me. And so when you say you can't imagine the people who would go um, uh, with that, I'm not sure you've met them. And the Democratic Party should have been addressing all those millions of people living on that level of, of economic despair. So I'm not, I'm not justifying the position. It's not about justifying it. It's about acknowledging that that's, I, I think a lot of people who voted for him, they, they weren't thinking about race. They were thinking about their own economic survival and they were conned. But when the other person said, Let's continue what we're doing because it's really working well. And they were drowning, drowning in the economic anxiety of what will happen if, my, if I get sick? What will happen if my child gets sick? How will I send my child to college? Or how will I even pay this college loan? You have the average American, the average American has $4,000 in the bank. You have fifty seven percent of Americans have one thousand dollars to their name.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess I I understand that. And I understand that that was the prevailing message that came out about these voters. But, you know, since then, we have a lot of data to show that, you know, I mean, we know that Trump didn't win working class voters. We know that Hillary Clinton won working class voters. And most of Trump's voters were actually affluent. And I don't know what the income was. I think the average, and I have to look up this number, 70,000 around on average income. So, you know, that was a, a myth about Trump voters that's been dispelled, you know, and and there's some other studies that have come out that, you know, when you question these people, they'll say, you know, oh, I, I have these concerns over the economy. When you remove all of those or rebut all of those, the
1: only thing that is
0: left remaining is race.
1: Well, I'm not saying that there was no racism or misogyny involved or definitely misogyny, by the way. Um, I'm not saying whether well, this was a perfect storm, so I'm not in any way denying that many people were voting from a racist place or voting from a misogynistic place. I think particularly the misogynistic place, has become more and more obvious as, as these two years have gone on, but also just pure greed. <laughs> I mean, like you were saying, some of the very wealthy people who knew all that and thought it doesn't matter. I'm going to, you know, probably do well with them. My tax, uh, you know, I'll get more tax breaks. It was all there. But I think the, bigger question we have now is what's going to defeat him. And I just think a bunch of anger thrown his way or, you know, shame is an act of emotional violence. And if all you do is tell people how bad Trump is, then they're going to feel if they voted for him, like you're making them wrong. And then I don't think they're going to vote for the alternative, you know, it's just kind of a human reaction. So, I mean, it's not like I don't agree with you that those factors were there. I think that the 2016 election was a perfect storm I think all of the above was at play including James Comey including the Russians and like I said a perfect storm
0: yeah you know when um when Trump took office you know he met with Obama you know that kind of a transitional meeting that they had and Obama said yeah. something to the effect yeah. that you know the the most pressing thing or the most important crucial thing that you'll have to address is North Korea yeah and you know I I think that that's, that's true. I'm not the president. <laughs> so yeah. I, I, I would know from his perspective. But, you know, I have to say that, you know, for me, it's 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 probably voting, right? But for you, what, what do you think, from your perspective, is the most pressing political challenge, like the first thing that you would want to address in office? Well,
1: first of all, I think when the ex-president, such as a Barack Obama, tells you that that's your first, you know national security challenge, I would take that very, very seriously. And I don't think that any of us on the left or the right underestimate the severity of the challenge uh, that is afforded by the situation with North Korea. I, I think obviously, and that's why who you choose to be the president is such a very, very big deal. There are an array of challenges, there are an array of crises that are on the president's desk. I feel, however, and I think this is essential to my campaign, that boosting the immune system of this society is as as important as what medicine to apply to the places where we're sick. So I would want to shore up what remains. Uh, And so, number one, one of the first things I would do is call European leaders and say, we're back. Uh, we would definitely be back in the in the alliance of family nations, a family of Western nations and the Western values, Western liberal values that are so important, and which the United States should be a primary demonstrator. We would get back in the Paris Peace Accords immediately. I think we need to go back to the Iran deal. I think we need a world-class environmentalist as head of your EPA. I think all the chemical and oil company execs have had their time there, and we will have the best environmental scientists and sustainability experts in the world who will then be working at our EPA, and the EPA would know that it has the full support of the president in treating this problem like the existential emergency that it is. We would have a world-class humanitarian and diplomat at the head of the State Department, working in an entirely new on an entirely new level of partnership with the Defense Department. We would have the United States Department of Peace. I would be calling Jacinda Ahern in New Zealand, who has said that her wish is for New Zealand to be the best place in the world for a child to grow up. I would say, girlfriend, you are on, and we would have a wonderful and healthy competition uh, because I would be seeking to uh, compete with her uh, for that slot. And I would work very hard and very quickly with both Palestinian and Israeli leaders to develop the kind of trust uh, that can only come from both sides, feeling deeply heard by the American president so that we could actually restore a position that we did once have as honest broker in the Middle East. And I, I believe that the, the the passion that I feel for an equal measure of support for the human rights of the Palestinians and the appropriate security rights and needs of, the, of Israel is part of what I bring to the table. And to be honest, the fact that I've spent 35 years, is, among other things, as a couples counselor will run me in good stead. I don't believe that the answer is ultimately just going to be on the answer of anything external when it comes to the Middle East. Uh, the best minds in the world have applied themselves to that problem. And the problem lies at a deeper level than merely where the green line is or where the settlements are or anything along that line. We need an entirely new dimension of peace building and peace creation brought into that situation. And I believe that I'm uniquely qualified uh, to do that on behalf of the United States.
0: Well, Marianne Williamson, thank you so much for talking to me today. I I truly appreciate your taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to me. And I, I wish you the best of luck.
1: I really, really appreciate it. And good luck to you with all you do. And you have a great, great program. And I hope you have all the success with it. Thank you so much. Much love. Thank you so much for listening.
0: If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help spread the word about the electorate, please leave us a five-star review and please ask your friends to subscribe. Please also support The Electorate by following us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And that's at Electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.